You're listening to Broadview Church Sermon Audio. For more information or to donate to this ministry, go to broadviewchurch.ca. Okay. Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Chris. I'm the pastor of Student Ministries here. And I know, I know, we're not like, this is a weird way to start a sermon. We've been wearing this. Again, a lot of people, you're either like Canadians, woo! or you don't care about hockey, or you're for sure not about the Canadians. But let's admit here for a moment. Let's just, I know, I don't want to talk about sports for too long, but let's admit for a little bit. Last year, um, when things were a little different, when there was just a Canadian division uh, for hockey, after all was said and done, the Canadians beat every other team. Just saying, just saying. And by the end of it, Canada was cheering for the Canadians, so hopefully you have a little bit of pride. We're not doing good this year, but that's besides the point. I'm kidding. So friends, uh, good morning. Again, I'm not here to talk about hockey, but I'm here to talk about what it means to be a Canadian. Not a Montreal Canadian, but a Canadian in terms of Canada. Now the Montreal Canadians, their team um, literally means the Hockey Club of Canada. So in a way, they do represent us, especially last year. Um, But a nickname they have is the Inhabitants of Canada, the Habs, the Inhabitants of Canada. This reflects a little bit of, in a way at least, who we are. At least for me, it does. So it's a bit of my Canadian pride. But we, as Canadians, we have some pride, especially when it comes to hockey. Again, if you don't like hockey, that's okay. You're still Canadian. Um, But uh, in other ways as well, whether it be, again, uh, definitely around sports, whether it be Olympics, whether it be uh, Winter Olympics, Summer Olympics, we do have Canadian pride. And we are proud of where we live, especially here in beautiful BC, am I right? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, it's amazing. And we have, so we as Canadians, we have pride to an extent, especially here in BC, about where we live. And there's definitely a sense of pride in being Canadian. But the question I want to ask today, and I want us to wrestle with, is what it means to be a Canadian Christian, and where Christian is emphasized. As the world continues to change, in Canada as well, the, the question you might be asking more so is, can you be fully, a fully proud Canadian and a Christian? That's what some people might wrestle, especially that's what Canadians might wrestle when they view the church, whether those two, two things can actually coexist. Uh, that question is becoming more and more. And we as Christians, we actually need to ask this question as well. How do Canadians see the church? How do its citizens, how does our government? And though these differences, uh, there, though there's differences in these perspectives, there are similarities all the same. So what I want to kind of start off uh, today with is kind of give you, and these are things you've probably heard, but just give you a little insight what I think, what Canadians think about the church, think about Christians, and then we'll see what we can do from there. So what Canadians think of Christians, not as much as what they see, but what they hear. Canadians hear that Christians are judgmental, that they're hypocritical, that they're exclusivist, and these are all negative things. And they hear these things in two ways mainly. First, they hear this through media, whether it be movies or TV shows or so on and so forth. This has been growing and growing, not just in Canada, but overall in North America. There is a negativity when it comes to the church. 
whether it be uh, in a movie, uh, a movie sharing a, a character of the pastor kicking out their son for being homosexual, or whether it being a couple in a, a episode of a, of a show making a snarky remark about a person smoking cannabis. Again, th- there's so many descriptions. I see it. I'm a person, I love movies, and I love, uh, I love kind of, I don't know, I love stories as a whole, and I love movies out of that. And the more I see, there's more and more negativity to the church, specifically to Christians, that in our media, people are being told, they hear that Christians are judgmental, that they're hypocritical, they don't live up to the rules that they proclaim, and last, that they're exclusivists. So they are, again, if you're not with them, you're against them, in a sense. So we hear this in media, whether it be movies, podcasts, so on and so forth. We hear this in a whole bunch of different ways. But the thing is, this is where it hurts me a little bit. It's, it's not just told in media, but we hear it from Christians themselves, in a sense, on social media as well. And, and one place that I hear this a lot is on Facebook. I remember when Facebook was starting to get going that uh, I was really excited about it in a way because I had a whole bunch of friends that lived far away when I was growing up and I couldn't connect with them otherwise other than uh, whether through MSN. Again, that's old. If you're, I know uh, Gen Z here probably doesn't know. Um, some of my students probably don't know what uh, MSN is. But when Facebook was going, it was about being social. I love how I could connect with friends that live far away, and I could connect with them not just through uh, mail, but I could connect with them weekly or even daily, and I got to see what was going on in their lives. But as time has progressed, we've seen Facebook change from a social platform to more of a business and political platform, where it's more, there's a lot more ads, but even more so, uh, what people are posting are not what ha- is happening in their lives. It's what they're trying to sell, but even more, what they are thinking politically. And this is true of Christians as well. When I look on Facebook, when I see my Christian friends, um, when I, the stories that I hear are stories of how they feel about things politically, whether it be how COVID is being responded to, how uh, their views on abortion and how people view things around that, or so many other political, economical, social, and spiritual things. They, Facebook has become a place where it's political. Again, what, and this is what not only Christians hear of other Christians, this is what the world is hearing. Again, they're broadcasting it to everyone, not willing to have a cons- discussion face-to-face, but is it's what the world is hearing, not just from media, but from social media, from Christians themselves. And this hurts my heart to an extent. So what do Canadians hear from Christians? They hear through these means. They hear that Christians are judgmental, that Christians are um, hypocritical, that they're exclusive in what they believe. And this is what they hear most of the time. But for us to be Canadian Christians, they're, they're hearing a message that is far from the truth on social media. So the question we need to raise is how can we be Canadian Christians? How can we be people that live in Canada but represent the image of Christ, represent the truth in itself? For it's the public words that we give that 
represent kind of who we are. And that is what they're hearing. What they're hearing is that we are judgmental, but they need to hear. They need to see something else. So to Canadians, we certainly do not line up with what it means to be Canadian in a sense, with, again, uh, how the Canadian identity is changing. But we certainly, when when Canadians view us, they certainly don't, don't see Christ. So how can we be image bearers of Christ in Canada. That's what I want to wrestle with today. And that's what we kind of see uh, Paul instruct the Church of Rome at the beginning of, of Romans 13. So if you want to turn with me to Romans 13, this is what we're going to see. And there's a lot of tension in this chapter in a way, especially considering things that we're going through today. And Paul challenges the church to be Christians when they're leaving in Rome in such a challenging climate in Rome. And before we read, I want to give you some context, because this is where he's challenging uh, the church to live in Rome, where Rome was very much against the church. So to know kind of what it was like, we need to know kind of what was the backstory so that we can actually understand what Paul is actually saying. So let me explain a little bit what's happening here. So Paul's writing to the church surrounding a topic that is interacting uh, with how the church interacts with Rome, with the Roman government himself. And the church, when it started in Rome, it was very much Jewish, Judeo-Christian based. So it started with Jewish people, and they kind of started the church in Rome. But as the church got on, there started to be more Gentile, more Roman citizens, and just Roman people being part of the church. Again, it was Jewish heritage. Uh, but even because it was Jewish heritage, there was a lot of negativity from the Jewish heritage Christians to Rome itself. And this had grown and grown in the hearts of Jewish people and Jewish Christians as well. And this had grown and grown over several hundred years because ever since Rome invaded Jerusalem, there was a growing animosity towards the Roman government from people that had a Jewish heritage, including the Jewish Christians, ever since they conquered, ruled, and especially because of the tax that they had on Jewish people. So the city of Rome and the early first century, when this letter was written, was a complicated place for the church to emerge. And we see that there was kind of a hierarchical system in Rome as a whole, where if you wanted to thrive in Rome, you needed to be a citizen, and everyone else was kind of put second. We see this, and Rome stretched from all the way from France to Jordan at this time. So if you were a Roman citizen, you were a step above everyone else. And we see this even in Paul himself. He actually uses his citizenship uh, in Acts. And we see it as a benefit, but we also see it um, as challenges as well. So the, the Rome was a very difficult place for the church to emerge. It was a very challenging place. Yet the Roman church itself was diverse from its beginnings. But it changed drastically by the time this letter was written. See, most likely the Roman church, like I said, it started, it was Jewish-based, where Jewish Christians came from most likely Israel, and they started church plants throughout Rome. And they started to grow with the the Jewish-based people, but there were some Gentiles there as well. But a little bit after the church had started there, something happened. In the year 49, AD 49, the emperor at the time, Emperor Claudius, deported all of the Jewish residents in Rome. And this included the Jewish Christians, and they were deported for several factors. So the Roman churches were left. Most of the people were deported. They were left just with a few Gentile people, and 
many, the Jewish people at the time maybe were thinking, hey, we're leaving. There's only a few people left in the church. Most likely, it's going to be challenging. They might grow a little bit, but it's going to be a struggle, especially because they don't know what we know. Because, again, with the challenges between Gentiles and Jews. But when they left... The church actually grew. It, it bursted, and so many Gentile people, Roman citizens, uh, slaves, so on and so forth, they came to the church, and it grew immensely. So by the time that the Jewish people could come back after Claudius had died, the church was quite different. It started being, from being a Jewish, uh, Jewish-ran and Jewish-led church to being a Gentile-ran and Gentile-led church. That created some tensions, and it's why... Paul is writing this letter. And that's a huge reason uh, what he speaks to with this passage specifically. So when they came back, the Jewish Christians, they had some struggles with the people that were running the church. But even more, they had struggles with the Roman government, not just for deporting them, but when they came back, they came back to a place that had high taxes, where it was otherwise a place that was really booming with the economy. They were taxed incredibly, and this created some animosity for those Jewish Christians. So much that they wanted to become zealots. They wanted to rebel against the nation, especially just in paying taxes, where they could be like people in Maccabees and throughout the New Testament, where they could cause riots, chaos, or so much more. And again, even in a simple way through just not paying taxes. And this led to what Paul is writing here in Romans 13. So would you read with me Romans 13, 1 through 7? This is what Paul has to say to the church concerning this issue. And concerning this issue they had uh, with authorities, the power of the government at this time. This is what he says. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for authorities are ministers of God attending to this very need. So pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. So this is very, the church at the time, when they heard this, this would have been very challenging. In the face of increased pressure from increased taxes and just increased animosity to uh, Jewish people and to the church, this was quite the thing for Paul to write. Again, Paul challenges the ter- church to be in subject, to serve the powers that be for several reasons. So first, tells, Paul tells them to be subject to the authorities just because God had put them in place. If we believe that God is the king of keys, kings, he's the creator of all, 
then we believe that, and we believe that God is sovereign overall. He is in control. Then we believe that God has put these powers in place. Regardless, he is ultimately in control. Second, Paul challenges them not to resist because of the judgment that they would face. If they start to uh, not uh, pay their taxes, if there gets to be even more animosity, then the church will be harmed, whether them themselves or the church as a whole in Rome. And remember, this is a time where it was extremely tempting for Jewish people, Jewish-based Christians to rebel because of what they were facing. And this is let alone what they were going to face five years later from when this letter was written, when they were, uh, went through the greatest persecution. They still had this letter when they were persecuted the greatest by uh, the emperor at the time, Emperor Nero. So again, they were challenged to be subject to the powers that be so they would not face judgment so the church could flourish without animosity from the government. And third, they were, Paul simply just tells them to pay their taxes, regardless of how they felt about Rome, regardless of how different they felt about the Roman state. He tells them to do it so they don't face wrath from Rome, but also because of the sake of their conscience, because they know that God is ultimately in control. And we see even in Jesus' teaching that they are, uh, that he teaches that again, that we are just called to pay our taxes for the sake of conscience, for what they believe. So that God is in control, he is sovereign, he is king of king above everything. So Paul in this verse is just simply telling the people of Rome, the, the Roman Christians to do one thing, to simply be good citizens, despite the persecution, despite the animosity that they were facing. And we see this right at the end of those last two verses. Again, they are told, again, uh, verse 6 and 7, for because you of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities and ministers of God, attending to those very things. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. They were called simply to be good citizens, to give, um, because that, that's what they were called to do, whether honor, whether respect, whether taxes, or whether, again, revenue. They were called to be good citizens. But they were called to be good citizens for several different things. And I want to give us a little picture of kind of what this kind of felt like hearing this uh, from the Jewish perspective. So we're gonna, I'm going to share a little story. So just imagine with me for this. Again, put yourself in their shoes. Imagine you are a Jewish salesman, and you're, what you're selling are these beautiful, beautiful kind of rugs. So you're a Jewish salesman, and you, uh, early in your career, you made a big decision. You are young, and you are uh, motivated, you are ambitious in your business of making and selling these gor- gorgeous, gorgeous carpets, which again, we don't see these around too much, but they are pretty sweet. Uh, but you're eager to sell, and you are making a big decision early in your career. You live in, Jer- in Jerusalem, and you make a decision. You hear that in Rome, the carpet business is booming. So you pack yourself up and you head to Rome, to the land of promise, the land of commerce and culture, seminar in BC. No, I'm kidding. Rome. We're talking about Rome. So you're young in business and you're selling these carpets and you've heard that there's great demand in Rome. 
After moving there, your business is booming. They are selling like no other thing before. And you're loving the business that you have there, but not only the business, you're loving that you and your friends, the people that you moved with, you got to start this church. You are new in learning about Christ, and you uh, are encouraged to start a church there, and it is thriving. You're learning about God in way more ways than you, what you were before. Your spiritual life is booming. Your business is, is booming. Everything is good. The land of promise of Rome is true. Yet after a couple of years, tension starts to rise in the city, and you realize that that tension is against you, against your people. Soon after that, one day, you find soldiers at your door, and they hand you a letter telling you that you must leave the city and go back to Israel, and you can't believe it. You had done nothing wrong, but all the same, you pack up your things and head on the road, because the road is way better than the Roman jail, especially because you're not a Roman citizen. So you get back to Israel, and you search for a home, and you, for the next five years, you're a wanderer trying to sell these carpets. Again, not only did you have to leave, but all the people uh, that were Jewish in the city had to leave, and that made the, the commerce climate, the economy, a struggle in Israel. And you struggle to make ends meet. And all the savings that you had when you were in in Rome, that slowly dwindles, and your hope dwindles as well. The only thing that grows in your heart is your hate for the Roman government, especially Emperor Claudius. But after five years, you find out that Emperor Claudius has died. You can actually safely return to the land of promise, the land where you were so connected with God, but you were also connected, uh, you were growing in commerce, and you were booming, and life was good. So as soon as you hear that you can go back, you go. There's no other place in Rome for you at this point. But when you get back, things were different. You get back to the church that you had started, where you were a leader. You were uh, a strong um, person teaching others who God was. When you come back, you see this church that's different. There's these Gentile people teaching. They they don't know what God has written. They don't know how to follow God, but they're leading it all the same. Not only do you feel tension against those leading the churches that you yourself started, you go back to the city, and even though the economy is good, you're still selling just as much as you were before. The tax, oh, the tax is destroying you. This land of promise isn't so promising after all. This is what the Jewish Christians felt when they were in the Roman church. They had so much tension with the church, but not only that, they had greater tension for the state of Rome. And Paul, Paul, this beacon of faith, tells him to be subject to the powers that be, to the those ruling, the, those leading the church, but also those leading the government, we have to pay taxes even though they are destroying us with what they're doing. Paul tells them to do it all the same. To pay taxes to whom taxes is owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, honor and respect all to those who deserve it, to the, those that are in authority in those places. Now, you might disagree with Paul here, and that's okay. I'm sure that there were several people in the church of Rome that really disagreed with what Paul was saying here. 
Whether you feel difference to the powers that be today, whether considering the COVID's response of our nation, economic matters, social matters, ethical matters, and spiritual matters of our church and of our government, we are yet called to be servants, to be good citizens, I would say, respectful followers of those who lead our country and lead our church. And we have examples of this in the Bible, so many examples. And I'll give you one in the Old Testament that's really strong for me. It's the example of Daniel. Daniel, just like um, some of these Roman citizens, he was taken away from his country from Israel, but he was taken away where he didn't get a choice to return. And one of the first things he had to do when he get, went there is he, him and his friends had this debate. They, the only meat that they could eat, and again, I'm a meat lover. I love eating meat, like good steak, good burger, mm, delicious. He went to uh, Babylon and all the meat that was there was all sacrificed to another god. And he had this thing, do I love and eat meat even though it's for another god or do I step away from meat? And he stepped away. He became a vegetarian. Good on him. That would be a tough decision, at least for me. Maybe for some of us. Maybe not for some of us. That's okay. But then even more. That was a minor thing that he had to struggle with, uh, with the, the ruling state at the time. Even more when the emperor at the time, sorry, the, the king at the time told all the people to bow down to a god daily. They had to go publicly and bow down to this god. He didn't go out with this scroll and say, thou shalt not do this. He didn't go and tell the Babylonians this. He didn't go up with a little staircase, a little ladder, and a picket sign saying, don't bow down to this god. No. He went to his room and kept faithful. He prayed daily. And though it eventually came to a point where it needed to be public with, an, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he kept faithful, and he sought to be a good servant as he did. He actually was a counselor to the king eventually because of who he was, who God had called him to be. He followed God, but he still respected as he could the, the government at the time. We see this in Jesus as well. Jesus, when asked, um, given a coin and asked, hey, do we pay taxes to Caesar? Because he, the Pharisees knew at the time of all the tension that Israel had with Rome. They asked him, trying to trick him, they asked him, hey, do we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus told them, he showed them the coin, showed them the face on the coin, which was Caesar's face. He told them, pay to Caesar what Caesar is owed, and to God what God is owed. Just even demonstrate even more being subject and being uh, respectful of the authorities at the time, even though he faced tremendous uh, persecution from it. He submitted himself to the uh, Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities as he went to the cross. He still was in subject. And that was the greatest act that he did because that brought us all salvation. That gave us the opportunity to be with God truly. He did that all with being subject to the powers that be at the time. We see this in Daniel. We see this in Jesus. That we need to be good citizens. So how does that work today? How can we be a Canadian Christian? Where we're, we're showing that, again, we are for Canada to an extent, again, ultimately for God, but that we're showing that the true image of Christ that he has called us to bear. How do we do that? 
I think the best example that we see is in the Roman church itself, in the first century church. And I want to share you this really cool bit of history. So in their book, The Seven Revolutions, uh, How Christianity Changed the World and Can Change It Again, Mike Aquilina and James L. Papagena, they show different ways that the first church, the early church, actually changed the world. And we see that ripple through history, and especially in the day today. And I want to read you uh, one revolution that just really is cool, just a little bit of it. This is the revolution of the person. So listen with me here. So now this little section is called What is, What's in a Name? Not long ago, Italian archaeologists completed an exhausting survey of all the inscriptions and graffiti in the Roman catacombs. Again, the catacombs in Rome itself. And one portion of the study dealt with the names bestowed and taken by Christians who lived in Rome. How many took biblical names? How many names were after early martyrs? How many names uh, Christian parents stuck with the old traditional Roman names? Again, they were seeing how different Christians were named. And an illuminating subsection covers humi- humiliating names or nicknames. On those walls, there, they, they learned that some Christians chose to bear names like uh, Protetius, I can't say that too much, uh, which means cast off or thrown away. Thrown away like trash. Again, their name literally meant trash. Others went through life with a name that was a Roman name, uh, Sectorius, or a Greek Corporeum. These names had harsh translations that is not good to say in polite company. Again, these are vulgar words, vulgar names for human waste, for excrement. So why would Christians choose to bear such names? It's likely that those particular Romans were, as infants, rescued from the dung heap. Literally, rescued from the dump. They were rescued by Christians from the place where Romans would abandon defective or female newborns. They had been exposed there like trash, left there to die. These names, all these people were luckily lucky to be alive, but as children they must have had to suffer the taunts of playmates, the, the taunts of other children. Those who were rescued by Christians could, at this time of their baptism, choose a new name like Matthew or Mark or Martha or Mary. Good Christian names. Yet historians believe that Christians kept their foul names as an act of humility or perhaps triumphant irony. These children who were in the dun of the eyes of Rome knew that they were precious in the sight of God. Just by virtue of having been created in the image of God, they were persons with as much right to live as the richest senator in Rome. See, in Rome in this time, to be a person, to have any human dignity, it it came up to two things. Whether it came up to uh, you, whether you lived or died depended on status and utility. If you did not have Roman status, then your life mattered little to those that did. And if you were not useful, then you could be thrown out. Whether, again, uh, they believe that, again, if you couldn't bear on the name, any female newborn, if you were a female newborn in a Roman 
um, family. You were literally taken to the dump where uh, you were left to die. And slaves, again, slaves at this time, it it was a matter of whether they were useful. If their usefulness was lost, they would be rejected and they would be thrown out as well. They would be killed. Yet the church did something different. They saw and they knew that everybody had human dignity. That human dignity was something that was essential in light of what we know, what we believe, what our conscience believes, and what God has spoken. And Christians would come and literally redeem them, whether it be a slave rejected by their master, they would come, redeem them, give them value, whether it was literally a girl thrown in the dump, left to die, they would come and they would adopt them as their own from the dump, literally give them, taking them from the worst place and showing them the life. These people would keep their names, their foul names. Why? Because of the redemption that was, that was shown through the early Christian church, the redemption of Christ. Again, in Galatians, Paul says, uh, in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. You are all one in Christ. In what we believe, we believe that all people have dignity, that we are all persons. You have value. Why? Because God has given that to you. You have value despite what you have done. You have value all the same. And this is what we see in uh, social justice today. People fight for human dignity. And this is something that the church and ultimately God has started. It's something that the church revolutionized. And ultimately, that was the act of Christ. So how did the church be good citizens? They didn't do it with a picket sign to protest. They didn't do it uh, through a post on social media uh, talking about how bad something is or how a bill was wrongly made or so on and so forth. No. The Roman church, they did it with their hands. They did it with their actions. They were good servants despite the persecution that they had faced. Literally being killed by the government, they uplifted people all the more. Literally lifting them up from the dump so they could be children of God. To be a good citizen means being for the people, despite whatever difference we might have to the powers that be. So how do we be a Canadian Christian, a Christian that represents Christ in Canada? I think it's far less with what we do with our words Far more with what we do with our actions. We need to be good citizens by voting, yes. By paying our taxes, taxes, yes, as well. But that hardly makes a good citizen. Everybody, that, that should be a simple thing. But being a good citizen means actually talking to our local representative about the needs of our people, not proclaiming it to everyone but that person on social media. We need to actually talk to them. Talk to our local MP, our local MLA about the needs. It means going to our local office and seeing the needs for ourselves, seeing what uh, our MLA, our MP sees that our um, area needs, what our country needs. It means volunteering. It means uh, giving financially. It means filling in where the needs are 
needed. It means pursuing the human dignity of all people with our actions first and our words second. It means helping in the soup kitchen, donating food, becoming a foster parent, adopting, helping just in the local welfare um, places as needed. It might even mean taking a a mental uh, first aid course because of the huge mental health crisis that is going on today. To be a Canadian Christian, we need to be for Canadians. Despite whatever we feel is against us, we need to be for people as Christ has been for us. For if we look at the, the words and the actions of Christ, the words of Christ They were life-changing, changing our hearts, but it was the act on the cross and the act of rising again that was ultimately life-giving, redeeming us like those Roman citizens from death, from the dung to life. So we need, how do we be Christian Canadians? We do it with our actions more than our words. So as you go this week, think about how you can, you can represent Christ more, not with your voice. Though that is essential at times, I will not deny that. But we must do it with our hands. We must do it with our love. We must do it with, our, with what we do so that people see Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this day and for who... You have called us to be. You have called us to be the people who represent you, who represent all that you've done for us, from creating us as people of value to creating us as people that represent you. You have given the opportunity for us to be your representatives, your spokespersons, but let, help us, Lord, to see how we can do that best and help us to see how we can act as uh, you have called us to be, how we can be for your people, all the people that you've created all around this earth, despite whether, uh, whatever persecution, whatever um, difference we face is from um, the authorities that be, Lord, help us be your people that bear your image all the more. I pray this all in your name. Amen.